This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles. Their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined by Mawera Karatai in Fakatani. Kira Mawera. Kira Sam, how goes it today? It's going very well. End of the week. What are your plans for the weekend? This weekend, I'm going to be helping a bunch of um, people who are leaving school this year. apply for scholarships at a bunch of different universities apparently i'm the person who knows how to do that so (laughs) that's my mission (laughs) and who are you introducing today today we have got wayne marriott and uh wayne i've um known for um for a number of years um living here in fakatani i describe him as an art historian social commentator and crazy genealogist um, his home is um, like a total celebration of all things art. Um, and he's just a pretty remarkable human, really. So it's really lovely to have you here today, Wayne. Thanks for sharing with us. Thanks, Mawera. Thank you for joining us. So how was your life in lockdown, your bubble life? My bubble life was actually pretty amazing. I mean, we've got a nine-year-old, so we had to look at a, a routine for a bit of homeschooling. And then after the homeschooling, I could escape into my office and, and dive into my world, which is kind of genealogy, history, art history. So um, I have to be honest and say it gave me a really good time to, to sit back and focus and also do a little bit of exercise, which was a change. Were you, were you doing the schooling? Um, between Andrea and myself, we were doing schooling. So um it was it was interesting uh, having to negotiate with a, a rather interesting nine year old who was absolutely determined that there were ways that they did it at school. However, I was taking her back to the way we did it in 1974, 75, 76, and I still think my way was right. This new way of doing subtraction was just something else, was it? No, uh, it was that. Look, the. The, our only battle was actually when it came to mathematics. So until they get to intermediate nowadays, they're, they're actually doing addition across a page. I'm one of those old-fashioned guys. I like to go down a page like a ledger. It's simple. They can work it out in groups of 10 um, and then carry it across. Just going across a page, I think it's just some um, nonny down at the ministry that's come up with a crazy idea to write a new book. And you're getting out and getting some exercise? Absolutely. So um, one of the good things that, that we were doing during the whole period is um, taking big, long walks around the, um, the town, through the town centre, 
um, keeping our eye on on friends around here, um, especially some of the older folks in uh, Fakatane, and just making sure that everybody was okay. So lots of good conversations um, across the picket fence, so to speak. It's almost like going back to the 70s and the 60s and, and those halcyon days before we all got far too busy in our own little worlds. It's been interesting how putting the constraints on our ability to act as a community actually strengthened communities. Well, I think it did because, you know, for many people, they suddenly had to stop for the first time in their lives for a very long time um, because you, you run here and you run there and you're doing everything for everybody else. And this was the one time that actually said stop and focus on your family, focus on your friends, focus on your community and also on your own well-being. So um, I think for a lot of people, uh, I do know, uh, for example, if I take my brother, um, he's a builder, it almost did his head in because he's out there, he's used to doing it. But what did he do? He fixed up his old car that he's got sitting in the garage and he started building a tiny house just as a bit of fun. And, um, and I think for him, that was a, a great way to take on the challenge of actually being stuck within a few acres um, as opposed to, to getting out every day and socialising or heading off to the pub and having a drink with his mates. So Mawera described you as an art historian, social commentator and something else. What sort I get of work described if... as a lot of something else. <laughs> <laughs> so what sort of work were you doing? Look, um, my, my background is uh, I've run museums in New Zealand and, and also overseas, so I've always been involved in the cultural heritage sector. So it's, it's always been a passion. Um, I was really fortunate. My passion for history started as a, a young kid growing up in Ashburton. So I used to get dragged around by grandparents to meet um, all these old ladies that smelt of, of lavender and lily of the valley and, and stuff like that, who turned out to be their aunts or their great aunts. Um, and I learned history firsthand. So as a paper boy, um, Many years ago, delivering the Ashburton Guardian in an old retirement home, I met a Boer War uh, participant and actually sat down as a 12-year-old and listened to a guy that had fought in the Boer War. And, uh, well, no, sorry, we've got to call it the South African War nowadays. Um, and uh, actually getting a first-hand understanding of, of what it was like as a, as a troop leaving New Zealand, taking their horses overseas and, and what they went through. First World War... Um, soldiers were a dime a dozen in those days and you just wander through deliver newspapers have a conversation and they'll tell you about Somme they would tell you about Samoa they would tell you about um, uh, Anzac um, and and they were really really cool and then you had this new group that was just starting to emerge they were quite young then um, and they were the World War II soldiers so now here we are all those years later and suddenly the the memory um, has, has gone. We're left with very few World War II uh, participants. Um, they've become very, very rare. And I think to actually have had that first-hand engagement, as opposed to the history book that's written 40, 50 years later, is, is remarkable in terms of how it does make you aware. To sit down with somebody like, for example, Fred Silverstein. Um, Fred was a guy that lived in Auckland. He passed away um, a couple of years ago. He was 13 when he was walking along the streets in Berlin and was picked up by the Gestapo and ended up in Auschwitz concentration camp and survived. Now, to actually have that first-hand 
conversation and understanding of exactly what somebody went through for the for the number of years that he was actually in Auschwitz is a remarkable honour for somebody to be given that that information and have it shared with you. So um, he was he was a great man. I, I brought him down to Invercargill because we had some problems at the moment at that stage in our community. And so it was a great way to try and bring uh, a community that wasn't working that well together so that they could actually have a conversation that would um, hopefully heal some of the issues that were there. We've always had an emphasis on learning from things like conflict. Do you think we've learned enough from the thing that happened straight after it, the, the Spanish flu? No, not at all. Um, look, the Spanish, the Spanish flu is actually one of those those interesting things. Firstly, we give it a name like the Spanish flu because you've got to blame somebody, so let's blame the Spaniards. Um, the second thing was that there's, there's a whole lot of conversations about how it actually ended up in New Zealand, and obviously uh, the Prime Minister of the time was blamed for insisting that a ship came into port. We also saw um, an incredible number of deaths in countries like uh, Samoa in particular, um, huge numbers um, died uh, pro rata of, of the population. In fact, it was probably one of the most decimated um, communities. I don't think we, we often look back and, and understand exactly uh, what's happened. And, and I look through it, and I look through the eyes of, of paintings and books and writing. So, so when you have an artist like, for example, Bruegel, and Bruegel's talking about uh, the year of the two winters. And so you know that actually, there was no summer that year. So when there's no summer that year, the crops fail. When you look, for example, through the history of the plague in London, I mean, they were actually fortunate that the Great Fire of London occurred the following year because that plague would have lasted for a lot longer than it actually did. We've seen um, these type of things occur um, every so often. The question is, this one would when it first started to, to occur, we looked and we saw the, some of the media reports that were coming out of China at that stage. And then on the other side of it, we also saw, um, uh, I, I kept thinking at that stage, there was a um, program back in the 70s that, that I watched as a kid. And it was about this mysterious virus that was spread on airplanes. And suddenly a lot of the world population was being wiped out. And Funnily enough, I, I said to Andrea one day, and it would have been during January, or, hey, look, this thing reminds me of this, this program. I, I'm not sure what's going to happen here. And then suddenly we saw what was happening in Italy, and I thought, right, um, regardless of where New Zealand is, we might be at the bottom of the world, but it certainly is going to affect us at some stage. So how do we, as a community, best prepare? And you have, there's a laissez-faire attitude that, you know, we'll be all right and we'll be this and we'll be that. But to be perfectly honest, we actually need to look after our most vulnerable. We need to ensure that as a community that we're actually focused on maintaining the strength. So strength of a community is not just about the healthiest person, it's actually about the knowledge as well. And sometimes some of your unhealthiest people in the world actually have some of the best knowledge that you need to look after and preserve. So um, how you actually insulate and look after your community becomes a challenge for whichever government happens to be in power at that stage. We've been through those challenges before. Um, you know, as New Zealanders, we, we forget we had infantile paralysis, um, polio. So our schools were closed in the 20s, they were closed in the 30s, they were closed in the 40s, they were closed in the 50s. Um, talking to mum and dad, 
they remember um, infantile paralysis. And, and we're actually talking about um, some of the people who ended up uh, with polio as a result of, of that um, uh, pandemic that went around the country. So we're, we're often too quick at looking forward. We need to look backwards occasionally to see what might be coming to whack us at some stage. And coronavirus, um, COVID-19 is just one of those things that's here to test us, to, to challenge us, and how we can show that we are resilient as a, as a community has, I think, been one of the big tests that, that's come out of this. Let's take the first of your music selections. Let's have Verdell Smith version of a tar and cement why this one look um it, it's one of our favorites when we're traveling anywhere to have playing in the car and and singing and uh doing everything i think it's actually a, a really interesting song about um you know the places that we grow up and we're used to those fields that we run around in those lovely fields and then suddenly you go back 20 years later and it's no longer a field it's actually full of roads and a subdivision and, and houses and even though the song actually came out of the 60s, it's actually as relevant today as it is yesterday. So, um, yeah, it's one of those songs that I've always enjoyed. The town I came from was quiet and small. We played in the meadows where the grass grew so tall. In summer, the lilacs would grow everywhere. The laughter of children would float in the air As I grew older, I had to roam Far from my family, far from my home Into the city where lives can be spent Lost in the shadows of tar and cement And every night I'd see them
was talking to somebody yesterday about the Anthropocene, the the layer of junk that's going to appear in the in the substrate that future geologists will be able to say that was when that happened. Are we going to be able to see a period of COVID in the art record? I certainly think we'll see a period of COVID in the art record. Um, there's been a large number of artists who have responded to it, musicians. Um, we've also seen dance, um, theatre that's come out of it. This has probably been um, one of the biggest challenges for the arts, um, not only in New Zealand, but also over the world. And, I, and by saying the arts, I'm also including museums and galleries. There's the challenges, how you re-engage with your audiences. Now, one of the things that I've, I've talked about for a number of years is actually um, access through digitization of, of records. And we've got some amazing museums and galleries in New Zealand and around the world who actually believe as part of their role and responsibility, they have to have access um, for the public, whether you're visiting them or whether you're visiting them um, uh, through the net. Um, where we've come unstuck is what we've seen is a number of galleries that actually have very, very little that's actually available. So it's the forward thinking. Um, you know, for us, it was wonderful sitting here at, at home. We actually watched the Royal New Zealand Ballet, um, Hansel and Gretel. Um, we encouraged some of our friends to go and do it. We knew people um, uh, from, from school and, and other kids who had never, ever seen a ballet in their life. And suddenly, here they were being able to watch the Royal New Zealand Ballet, um, putting on one of their performances that had been pre-recorded. And for them, they've said, when the stuff really happens, we want to go and see a real one. Um, so because people actually had that time, and let's face it, unless you are spending all your time flicking through Netflix or Sky or, or Neon or some other form of system, um, people were getting bored with a lot of media. Um, because it was the same old, same old. This was a way to actually stimulate something that was a, a little bit different, and I thought fantastic. Um, we went um, visiting the Louvre. Um, that was one of the things that we did one day, was actually skedaddled around that particular museum. We went through Jorvik um, in York. We had a look at um, a couple of the other collections. So one of the things that we did for, for home learning was to actually give um, Hannah a few challenges about works of art and stuff like that. So she got to have a look through some of the stuff and she'd go, oh, that's Leonardo. Um, so you'd see the Mona Lisa and she, she knew it was Leonardo. Um, why? Not because her dad had told her, because she'd watched, watched some kid's cartoon ages ago about somebody that time travels and they end up having a conversation with a man called Mr. Leonardo, who's painting this moaning woman called Lisa. So, um, you know, things like that. It's amazing what kids remember. But as soon as she saw this painting, she went, oh, that's the Mona Lisa. Yes, that's right. Don't call her the moaning Lisa. She's the Mona Lisa. So, um, look, you you have a, a heck of a lot of fun. I think we're, what we're going to see probably over the next 12 months will be from a number of artists, um, their response to um, COVID-19 and, and lockdown. What we are seeing at the moment, though, is in terms of the conversations, many of the artists that I've, I've caught up with are actually saying they had a great time during lockdown because they said nothing changed for them because many of them work in isolation. They, they like to um, uh, slowly um, think about the works that they are uh, producing and, and having a, a heck of a lot of fun doing it. 
And the added advantage with this one is nobody was banging on their door halfway through trying to create something, whether they were writing poetry or writing a play or something like that, saying, do you want to come and have a cup of coffee or, or annoying the pants off them? So um, there, there were some positives for, for quite a few people. There were some negatives as well, but um, the positives were, were obviously being able to have that time to, to think and, and create. And so... You know, if you, if you look at what, for example, organisations like um, Creative New Zealand did, they had a really good um, response package that uh, they then delivered to actually help the music industry, the arts, um, opera, ballet, etc., um, coming through. And I think that was important because one of the good things about any community is the 360 degrees of the community that we live in. And so if you're only living in a community where um, we just want to look after business, and we're going to say, you know, blow the arts and, and culture, um, or we're only going to support sport and not something else, or we're not going to support sport. Actually, it means that we, we lose something. Um, but we have a, a wonderful richness here in New Zealand where we have sport, we have art, um, we have business, we have entrepreneurship, and, and all of that is embraced. And um, sometimes it's a bit hard for people to get their head around the fact that, you know, you should be supporting artists and stuff like that. But, hey, we all like to put the stuff on the wall and, and enjoy it and uh, listen to music, listen to poetry. So why not? If we take that role of art as the the mirror of the society or as, as challenging, have we seen anything that, that's come out that that's made us think, yep, we need to be dealing with that. This is it's highlighting something for us. Look, from what I've seen so far, there's there's a lot of things that are starting to emerge, but there's nothing that's really hit me. Um, one particular artist um, I, I'm aware of um, is about to launch a, a major show, which is actually um, 365 uh, bags where he's got people painted um, over the front. Now, that's that's incredible. He's just got to finish it first. And it's looking at the, the daily response. Um, it becomes part of a much much wider uh, conversation. Um, the other, look, to be honest, um, walking into some of the galleries, I, I um, had a look around uh, some of the new galleries in, in Auckland. Um, there's new work that's coming out, and so the isolation has actually allowed some of the artists the time to sit down to, to do some more research from their libraries at home or on the internet. And so they're actually creating some much more richer and responsive work and I think um, we're going to we're certainly going to see a lot of that um, coming out over the next two to three years I'd say because um, you know COVID, COVID's not a two-month wonder it's actually a, um, a a major impact on the lives of not only New Zealanders but everybody around the world. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokadui, Dunedin's favourite goddess Hope you're all having the best day. Beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. I really hope that wherever you are, whatever is happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very fulfilling, very exciting, and is revealing for you more and more each day who you are, of nature's art. Perfect. And here, things better. Thank you. So, of course, as we know, I've been through this big whirlwind magical mystery adventure 
for the last several days and I've now returned home today which is very very exciting and it was very interesting coming home because it seemed huge having had this lovely small space which was for me and only a few possessions for me which was very relaxing and soothing and came home to my precious mansion and thought wow you know spacious and so many beautiful treasures everywhere and so it's been quite intoxicating on that front and then of course I got to reunite with obviously my beloved true love Harvey Penfold who picked me up and then of course Poirot and Hastings it turns Nahehe Atahua the amazing the beautiful veggie garden lots of lovely tui in the backyard the backyard the entire house the entire personal universe the car everything so it's been very exciting being able to head back out into the outside world and it's such a beautiful day today in Autiporti Dunedin and of course I've had amazing amazing support from everybody throughout the ether when I have been in hospital and I've just been so grateful so I've really felt a sense of protection the entire experience that I've been on I felt very supported and very protected by everyone around me and by all the systems that are in place around me and it's really helped to remind me how lucky we are here in beautiful Aotearoa New Zealand that not only do we have these incredible essential workers that saw us through as a, you know the core of a dream team of five million through lockdown level four level three level two and now in level one all these wonderful essential workers helping me and all those systems that are in place to support them and our wonderful national health system and I just feel so grateful and not only our national health system but of course all of the multitudes of lives that have gone before mine have enabled all of the understandings of the body that we currently have and all the technology that we have created all the tools that we have created and what I loved about this whole journey is that right at the crux of it all again of course was our most ancient ancestor bacteria and multi multicellular life of course owes everything to our single-celled ancestors and all these wonderful doctors of course were trying to grow these tiny tiny bacteria on my beautiful urine and my beautiful blood they're trying to grow these beautiful bacteria and I said to them please 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 send me a photo you know if you can and they're very excited by this no one had ever asked for a photo of the beautiful bacteria before but I love the sense that however we're going through this process of protection whether it's at Orokanui with the fence of defense whether it's caring for ourselves caring for those we love whether it's in the medical context or whether it's in our own spiritual and uh, mental emotional context at the crux of it all we come back to new life new possibilities and the unknown but with with of course the promise of healing and rejuvenation and a sense of love and support from the infinite web so it's been such an amazing journey and I'm very grateful to be home and I'm very grateful for all that protection that I have felt so I hope that wherever you are you too are feeling that protection that's around you and I look forward to talking to you tomorrow thanks so much We've seen lots of changes at a societal level over the last 
few months. What do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick? What I'd like to see stick is the um, the more humane, humanitarian side, um, becoming re-engaged with our neighbours again, all of those things. Um, I'm worried we're going to go back to, to um, what it was like so quickly because we forget so quickly. If, if you think about New Zealand society, say back in the 70s, um, people were um, well engaged with their neighbours, they were engaged with their streets, their kids were out on the street, um, sitting in the gutters throwing stones at the passing hubcaps of the uh, cars and occasionally they'll pull over, kick you in your bum, go inside, tell your mother and father what you've done and they'll kick you in your bum. Um, but um, what we've now got is this whole thing where, um, and you know, we're all guilty of it, where you know, we drive the precious little bundle to school, we bring the precious little bundle back home, um, you know, the risk has gone um, for, for a lot of our young people and our children. We've wrapped them up in cotton wool, whereas they actually do need to have that risk occasionally. They need to fall out of a tree. They need to climb a tree. They need to fall out of a tree. They need to hurt themselves. They need to get a bruise. Why? Because at the end of the day, they won't climb the tree and fall out of it. The next time, they'll actually stay in the tree. So um, it's, it's to me, it's about those experiences. Take where we are at the moment, we're still um, talking to our neighbours, we're still having those those conversations, we're still taking that time to be engaged with people, but as we get the pressure that comes on us, as we start to see probably October, November, December this year, more economic pressures coming in and, and whole questions um, about what is actually going to happen, because we look at what's happened in Victoria, we're seeing what's going on in, in New South Wales. We've got the question mark over um, Queensland at the moment. We're looking at other parts of the world where they're now talking about wave two and wave three going through. We've been incredibly fortunate with wave one and wave one was actually kind of a, a little toe dip in, in the beach. So um, we, we've been really lucky because as a country, we've, we've never had to really think about this before. What's been wonderful is this has given us time for our inventors, our entrepreneurs to, to work out how they can actually create new um, ventilators, how they can actually respond to the system, how we can actually look at medicines, which um, not only we have to bring in overseas, but what we can have um, locally, how we can isolate in certain areas. Um, all of those things should become really comfortable conversations. It's shouldn't be about when can I get on a plane and actually head to Rarotonga or go to um, Singapore because I need a new suit. I mean, that's that's basically a load of um, selfish bollocks if you're asking me. What we really need to be able to do is actually say, how do we look after our community, keep our community safe, but also have international relationships, um, uh, still do business, um, still have those conversations and actually just maintain and look after ourselves and keep ourselves sane while this um, unknown, um, unidentifiable, invisible disease is actually out there. Um, one of the things I've always um, talked about is uh, what we saw with COVID, it reminds me of the phony war. The phony war was that period when um, in 1939 when Germany headed off and and uh, invaded Poland, um, kind of looked at the, the French and, and didn't do anything. And so people ran around with this laissez-faire attitude thinking, oh yeah, she'll be right, you know, it's not a problem, it's not affecting us. And then suddenly, um, 
you've got the best defense system that you thought you had with the Maginot line. And what do you do? You just kind of pop around the top through Belgium and, and suddenly you're in Paris. Um, so we've been going through what I would call the phony war um, in the sense that we've had a taste, we understand, we know what's going to happen. Um, we haven't actually had the real whack yet. And we will at some stage, I know, open our borders. And at some stage in the future, somebody will come through who gets out of the quarantine system or something happens between something. Um, and, you know, we, we're going to get it. I, I was in Auckland the other day and uh, we drove past one of the COVID hotels and there was one of the drivers had pulled up and the passengers were getting out and he was um, got out and he was helping take their luggage, handing it to the porters who were there. The one thing I noticed, he was wearing a mask. That was great. As he picked up the bag handles with his bare hands and handed them to the porter who was actually wearing gloves. And I just thought, whoa, come on, guys. We've got to start thinking. You've got to start thinking two steps ahead um, because this man needs to protect himself. He was uh, an older gentleman. And I would have said late 60s to the mid 70s, um, doing a really good job. But somebody actually needed to say to this guy, well, actually, when you get in, you're taking all this stuff because we've now got transmission. We know that it stays on certain surfaces for certain periods of time, either short or long. Um, and we have to be aware of that. Um, walking through Auckland the other day, you know, the, the standard um, line talking to our daughter was, so you really think you should be touching that all the time? Because think about how many people. And she looked at us and said, but nobody's got COVID. And I said, ah, but you're wrong. That hotel over there is the COVID isolation hotel. That one over there is. And suddenly it was like, oh. And so I, I, I think we can become complacent too quickly because it's not happening to us. And um, when you become complacent, well, guess what? You're no longer in the phony war. This is Marcus Turner's When the Boys Are On Parade. Here they come marching past the houses, shiny boots and khaki blouses, stiff as the creases in their trousers, standing tall and straight and strong. And they all keep in step together, glint of steel and flash of leather, braving every kind of weather as they boldly march along. You can dismiss it as a ploy for the enlistment of the boys who'll be impressed to see the toys and play the games that can be played. And you may well prefer abstention but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade look at your sons before they're older they'll be stronger they'll be bolder just the thing to make a soldier and we'll turn them into men and they'll be taught to follow orders keep the peace and guard the borders to protect us from marauders and defend us to the end But the position they'll be filling Is to be able and be willing To be killed or do the killing When there's a price that must be paid And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade 
In the pursuit of a community of decency and unity and equal opportunity, we stand prepared to fight. And if there's a threat to our position from an unruly opposition, then with guns and ammunition, we'll repel with all our might. And we'll dehumanize and hate them, sending the troops to decimate them as in the name of all the nation. All it stands for is betrayed. And you may well prefer abstention, but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade. For merely the whim or intuition of an elected politician makes a melee with no conditions once the monster quits the cage. It's a machine that gives no quarter, dealing death and sowing slaughter, raping mothers, wives and daughters in an all-consuming rage. And we may well believe we need it, and we'll pay to arm and feed it. But can you tell me who will lead it when the decisions must be made? And you may well prefer abstention, but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade. Some will wonder what's to fear and say that there's no danger here, but there has never been a year when soldiers haven't been at war. And all the evil executions and the bloody revolutions and the ultimate solutions to have all been seen before. And there is always someone scheming, and sometimes at night when dreaming, in the distance I hear screaming, and in my heart I feel afraid. And you may well prefer abstention, but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade. Here they come marching past the houses, shiny boots and khaki blouses, stiff as the creases in their trousers, standing tall and straight and strong. And is it any cause for pride that now the women march beside them? Will there be wiser gods to guide them in discerning right from wrong? For every step is a reminder of the threat that lies behind if we forget the ties that bind us when the authentic game is played. Abstention, but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade. And as the procession passes by, consider the sight before your eyes, cause it'll be you they kill and die for if they are called to the crusade. Or you may love them and adore them, you may hate them and abhor them, but for Christ's sake, don't ignore them when the boys are on parade. Our uh, approach, our policy, our messaging has been based on this this notion of be kind, this this kindness message linked to the well-being. Have you seen that sort of message being used before? I, I, you know, if we have you know dig for victory and all the different messages that have been used at different times of, of crisis. I don't know that there's been a similar just be kind message. Um, to be perfectly honest, I haven't actually looked it up. And, and thought about it, it was um, um, quite a good marketing strategy that, that came out because it's simple, um, B 
be kind. It's two words. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're one or sorry, we're two or three or 98. You can understand those two words. How to be kind to somebody is up to your own in interpretation. And so what I saw um, during the lockdown period, how I would interpret being kind were some of the, the um, wonderful, generous um, support that, you know, we were seeing people get where um, people would drop off food parcels, where they would keep an eye on their neighbours, where they would have those conversations. That was a level of, of kindness. We had also another level of support that I don't think was, was necessarily be kind, but it was actually be resilient and be amazing, which were um, the guys in the front line, like the police force, um, like our ambulance officers, like the army, um, all of those those guys who um, were actually there, they had no choice. Um, our supermarket workers, um, walking in and seeing, you know, I actually loved going to the supermarket during lockdown because you'd have that conversation with those ladies um, who had actually made the decision they wanted to be there. And, um, you know, they, they did an incredible job um, for all of us because we food coming through. We, we didn't starve as New Zealanders. In fact, I think most New Zealanders are probably guilty of consuming either too much wine or beer and eating far too much good food because they actually had time to sit back and think about it. Um, so the only people that have made a lot of money are probably the clothes shops because we've all expanded by at least a couple of centimetres. But only in the so, top half. Um, what do you mean? We're only buying <laughs> clothes for the top half. Well, yeah, that's true. Well, it, it depends. Um, but, you know, it's it's it's... One of the funny, and I think we've had some really good, um, hilarious bloopers come out, especially a few politicians, uh, the ones overseas, who decided, and even some of our local body politicians, um, when uh, you saw them having their um, uh, various meetings, and suddenly they stand up and, well, the, the, the undies were there, or the boxer shorts were there, and they forgot to put their pants on, and you're kind of thinking... Um, there was one, I think, from Nigeria or somewhere, which um, seriously should never have been on the internet because there should have been a lot of um, uh, big circles around things. Um, uh, you know, you, one should dress for any interview <laughs> or, or conversation, regardless of whether you're the, you're the prime minister, a, um, a local government politician, um, Joe Bloggs or whoever. Um, there is a standard at the end of the day. What do you think we can learn from this pandemic response for the longer term questions, intergenerational questions, climate change, social justice and so on? I think the, the climate change, um, we certainly saw um, with the aircraft uh, not flying, there was um, that change in, in degrees uh, once again. The last time we saw that was uh, after September the 11th. And um, uh, uh, when we had um, the no-fly zones and we actually saw um, various um, surface temperatures drop at that stage, I think it's made us all aware. Um, it, it was interesting. We didn't see a lot of the um, environmental messages or stuff like that coming out at that stage. But actually, I think people were more aware themselves of, of things like that. So in terms of where we're going forward, um, I think what we need to do is make sure that we've always got that plan in the back door as to um, there are new types of viruses that are coming out and emerging um, all the time. So any 
sensible country would actually have uh, plan A and plan B and plan C sitting there in place. Um, the other thing that we also have to be aware of is, is the most vulnerable within the community because we think it's easy that, that one thing fits all, but actually it doesn't. Um, you know, we have uh, older people and we're seeing that in Victoria at the moment where this is just going through uh, the rest homes and um, they don't have the ability to, to fight that. So um, we all love our grandparents and our aunts and uncles and, and everybody else. We want to look after them. Um, we don't want to make them the first victims because we haven't actually taken the right precautions to look after them. So there is that level. The other thing um, which was amazing to see was actually the response from Iwi in terms of looking after uh, Kuya, Kamatua and some of their most at risk families. Um, I mean, that was, that was incredible and everybody could take a, a lesson from that. Um, likewise, we had um, some of the organisations um, whether it was um, Rotary or Lions, um, even even the lodges were doing stuff. I saw one um, Masonic lodge down on the west coast. What they were doing was dropping off around the community a pound of white bait, a loaf of bread, and a pound of butter. Um, I mean, seriously, I want to move to the west coast just to get the the white bait. Um, you know, it was it was fantastic to see that that level of generosity coming out. How somebody had a freezer full of white bait and said, "Well, let's share it." Um, and you, people started doing that. I mean, I know a number of people with baking, with making meals, they would make something big and then they would make small parcels up and, and have it dropped off to people or, or go for their walk and drop it off in, in various letterboxes. So that's, that was good. But I think we still have a big risk because um, there is a level of disparity um, that we're seeing and it's growing. We will see it become even bigger um, when we see uh, redundancies and the, the international fallout, uh, economic fallout actually really hit uh, New Zealand. So I think, you know, the be kind message that was certainly being promoted um, is actually even going to have to be be kinder because uh, um, there are going to be a lot of New Zealanders who are going to be hurting over the next six to 12 months and that's going to carry on for at least five years. I mean, for me, I remember the stock market crash of the 80s and we saw what happened in, in those days. We've seen the other global um, resets that have occurred over the years. We all know what happened during the, the 20s and the 30s with the depression. Um, uh, the only thing I'm, I've had a bit of a um, wry smirk about was this whole concept of shovel-ready projects. And, and I go back and, and look at something my grandmother wrote about Bob Semple. And... Um, uh, they were doing some of the, the work in Ashburton at that stage um, on the power stations, and they finally threw out the shovels and the picks, and they bought in the machinery. Um, so, you know, let's get rid of the shovels, because we all have these horror pictures of uh, men in Auckland dragging along big rollers in the 1930s, um, building the roads. None of us want to ever see that again from any government. Um, what we want to see is actually New Zealanders all being able to contribute to the maximum of what they can do and also making sure that the dignity of our community remains intact because the moment we lose our pride, the moment we lose our dignity is the moment we're going to have even bigger social issues coming through and um, we don't need that within, the, uh, within our country. So I have some questions to end with and not very much time to get them so will be quick. Okay. What's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? 
biggest success in the last couple of years for me was um, persuading uh, to Papa to purchase a, a rather unique painting that I'd been hammering them for 20 years to go and do. It's now on exhibition. It's amazing. Um, it's a work that actually shows uh, a small Kaitahu settlement down in, uh, well, it wasn't even a settlement, it was just a small village down in Dusky Sound near five, uh, Nine Fathoms uh, Passage. That was an amazing acquisition uh, for all New Zealanders um, and, and wonderful to see. So that's been my biggest success in terms of that. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our collection of people doing good work. So you're on our team. What is the superpower that's got you into our mansion? <laughs> I have no no idea what my superpower is. Um, my my power is I really like to engage with people um, across the whole community. Um, so it's something that that came from growing up in a place like Ashburton, where um, you know everybody um, knew each other. We were all engaged with each other. But also coming from a place like Mid Canterbury, where we were surrounded by so many people, so many family members. You couldn't do anything wrong. They all kept an eye on you. So um, you learned at that stage to become engaged and also to become aware. But also, if somebody needed a hand, you learned to give that person a hand. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? I've never really thought of it. Um, uh, I've never really thought about that label being on me. I guess I have been over some things over the years. I mean, I, I stood up and objected years ago when some uh, less than charitable people wanted to um, get rid of Toreo as an official language for New Zealand. Um, I was absolutely horrified, and it's about the only time I've ever made front page of the Auckland Herald, about, you know, one inch, one centimetre column. Um, so, I mean, I, I think given, given the way that we were raised by mum and dad and also grandparents and everybody else, We've we've also always had a social conscience um, to be there. So um, I love fighting for the underdog, and um, that's that's actually the thing that that always gets me out of bed is when you can help somebody, when you know that um, by the actions that you're doing, that actually you're making life better for them and also for future generations. So that's that's kind of um, something that really drives me. Um, the word activist, yeah, it's. It's, it's never really a word that I've ever put on myself, but um, socially aware, yep. What challenge are you looking forward to in the next year or so? Oh, look, the, the challenge for me, um, I've got a book that's uh, due out. So um, that's actually on the history of electrification of the uh, Bay of Plenty. So that's that's been an amazing um, book to be involved in um, and to write really the social history of um, that whole um, uh, process of, of how actually electricity has changed the, the face of, of our community. Um, and uh, it might not sound like anything, but um, hey, dairy farmers used to milk six cars and then suddenly along came an electric milking machine and they went to 18 and then they went to 36 and blah, blah, blah. And I'm also doing another one, which is actually on the history of our um, various families that came from a little village in, in Germany called Kindenheim. So um, that's that's amazing to be able to do something that goes back to about fourteen seventy five and and keep researching that. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? 
my advice to to any listeners would always be yourself always think of your neighbors um if you can go out there and you can help somebody and you can do one good deed by helping somebody every day then actually you're doing what you should be doing so um go out there and and be nice to everybody thank you very much for that moira um, I didn't know that you could just go wandering through these amazing museums online. So that's our mission when Jack gets home from school today. Thank you. You've given me something exciting I can do with my boy. I appreciate that. Thank you, Wayne. No problems. My pleasure. And let's go out to John Hanlon's Dan the Dan. safe spaces around the world brought to you by the sustainable lens team which is brought to you by otago polytechnic we're broadcast on otago access radio every weekday afternoon at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz you can find us on facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts we had a contribution from tahu mckenzie i'm tamuan in soyers bay dunedin with mawira karatai and wayne marriott in fakatani we hope you enjoyed the show. Damn, damn, cried the Mandel as he flew into, as he flew into the sky. To give part to the people, all this beauty has to die. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.